If you think the Caribbean is just sun, sand and sea, then don't go anywhere as we show you the Caribbean you never knew existed. Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller. Thanks for tuning in wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Kim and Phil with you discovering the Caribbean. Uh, yeah, and look, this episode sitting alongside the Caribbean Guide that we released in uh, late 2019, and that's highlighting a region that's much more multifaceted than its picture postcard reputation might suggest. It's the region of the Americas that consists of the Caribbean Sea, obviously. It's many islands and the surrounding coasts. From mountain peaks to dense rainforest and volcanoes, the Caribbean is diverse, culturally rich, and as we say in the guide, as vibrant as anywhere on the earth. Yep. In this episode, we'll chat with a few of the contributors to the guide and fill you in on some exciting news about our travel writing scholarship. So let's kick it off, Phil, with Deirdre McLeod, a Jamaican woman who had an idyllic childhood. For me, yes, it was. Um, it is. Like, I still live here. I've moved around a bit, but it is idyllic it depends on also what your version is but for me um growing up in jamaica is having you know sun all year around having being outdoors playing with all of your cousins and having like a big family which is an extended family of friends of immediate family um going to the beach and just being able to explore So for me, that was a big part of growing up. Well, we know that the Caribbean is more than beaches and and reggae music. Exactly. That does sound like an idyllic childhood, but take us through, you know, the diversity. It's not just white sand and clear water. It really isn't just um, sun, sand, sea. You also have language differences. So you have the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, so you have Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. You have the English-speaking Caribbean, which includes Jamaica, um, St. Vincent, all the way to Trinidad and Tobago. Um, but then there are also, you know, other islands like Saint Martin that, you know, is, speaks French with Martinique and Guadeloupe as well. Um, you also have Dutch side of St. Martin and Suriname, which is, we also like to reclaim Suriname. We do share a lot of history. So you have language differences across the Caribbean. You also have different ethnicities because of our history. To take Jamaica for, as an example, we have a large, large group of Chinese, a Chinese population in Jamaica. We have a big Indian community. We also have, of course, persons of Afro-Caribbean descent. Um, We also have, you know, persons who are white. But I would say one of the big, for me, it's an interesting part of the Caribbean is that while you have this, it, it really is a melting pot of cultures. So our Chinese community comes together with our Indian community, with our Afro-Caribbean community to create the Jamaican culture. And this you can see across the Caribbean. So you can see it through our food, you know, that we create. So we have curries, which are a big part of our cuisine. You can also see it through our music in terms of we have different, we have carnival, which talks about soca and you can listen to calypso. You can also have reggae and dancehall. You have zouk. So for me, the interesting part of the Caribbean is that each of the different ethnicities, the different communities come together and 
participate and contribute their part of their culture to create that one Caribbean flavor depending on the island that you go to. And it's different variations based on the island. Is Jamaica a safe place to visit? For me, yes. So one of the great parts of experiencing Jamaica is that I moved away for seven years and I came back. And so I have a good example of coming back as like a foreigner, as like a visitor, because I've not been, I'm returning, but I've also experienced Jamaica as a local. And I see the different dichotomies. But for me, it really is safe in the sense that you can travel around Jamaica and the Caribbean as, you know, a solo traveler, which I do. I go to, I just jump in my car or or get a driver and I go to different parishes. Um, You can also walk around and just explore. You do have to pay attention to, which is for me, general safety rules, no matter where you go, you know, pay attention to how much jewelry you have on, or, you know, maybe taking care about the amount of money that you walk around with and just paying attention to going out alone at night. But for me, this is something that I would do no matter where I am. And what's important or what's interesting as well is that I did, I was able to, I had opportunity to speak with over 30 other visitors who are women um, in Jamaica, who have visited Jamaica, and they all share the same sentiment. So they all are saying, yes, just pay attention to your valuables, you know, um, know where you're going beforehand, take um, chartered or regulated transportation, which is available everywhere and um but you're also safe we have we had women who motorbiked around the country for three weeks and we're okay so for me it is generally a, just a general safe place it's not it's not crazy it's not oh my god what's gonna happen to me I don't yeah. and those rules would apply to to any type of traveler Yeah, I would say, though, that one caveat might be as a woman in the Caribbean, which for me, it's no matter if it's inappropriate, good, bad or inappropriate. um, We do have our men who like to share um, their appreciation for the female form. And so you might have um, you might be called and saying, hey, beautiful. That can sometimes be alarming. No, I would love that. Yeah, you would love it. But I've had friends who are like, this is so strange. Like, (laughs) everybody just says, hey, or hi, you're so sexy today. Or, you know, you look great. And it was was a strange, not necessarily overwhelming, but sometimes it might be. Um, But that's also something for my friends who have visited, they've commented on as something different. Yeah, and I'm not being flippant because I know that people don't like being commented on about the way they look. But when you right. get to a certain age, bring it on. <laughs> um, so you have written an article for us on um, travel safety tips for uh, Jamaica, which we will, women's safety tips for Jamaica, which we'll share in show notes. But some of those, being a local, can you share with us some of those off the beaten path places that might not necessarily be on everyone's radar? One of the places which I really enjoyed was we, in Jamaica we have a great big spot for bioluminescence. So that's, you know, a lagoon where when you go, 
it lights up when when the water moves it lights up in this great big neon blue and for me it was just a really great experience it's in the it's in the dark um you do it at night to make sure that you you know you really see the brightness brightness of the light so that's one thing that we have we do also have like a lot of adventure encounters that you can go on so you can do cave spelunking across the caribbean we have a lot of limestone caves as well in in jamaica you can do a lot of zip lining or waterfalls it's not just one we have a main one for jamaica with stone zero falls but there are so many each parish has a waterfall that you can explore and discover these are some of the off the beaten path things that you can do now as you said you you come and go and you've spent a lot of time in europe so you're very well traveled your site deirdre in wonderland does that cover travel tips and stories and from every place that you visited yes it does um my mission for me is to get caribbean women to travel more to understand that it's attainable um so i do it by sharing my travel adventures the places that i've been sharing what kind the different tips that i found out while traveling i've been traveling i think i've recently found out since i was 10 years old every single year i've gone someplace so um, I won't tell you how long I am now, but it's, it's over 15 years of just yearly annual travel. And I do try to share my tips and open up the world to Caribbean. For me, women as well, because I find travel to be an empowering and exhilarating um, activity. And I want Caribbean women to know that they can do it as well as solo travel in group, um, and it's something that is attainable and you can curate your own experience no matter your budget. Thank you, Deirdre. Links and show notes. And a parish, by the way, is like a province or a state. So I learnt something there. There are a lot of people to thank for their contribution to the guide, including Ellen Hall, our editorial producer, North America, who says our next guest, Phil, can chat about anything Caribbean. All right, it's Bill Fink, and he wrote a piece uh, for our Caribbean guide about climbing the active Soufria volcano on the island of St Vincent. Last year, a tragedy unfolded when many visitors to a volcano on New Zealand's White Island died when it erupted. We asked Bill if he thinks exploring volcanoes is safe. I think it depends on the uh, situation. You know, it's something where you need to check in with uh, local experts to see how active it is, if there is any real danger of going there or if it's kind of uh, safely observed. Um, The trip that I wrote up for the Caribbean guide um, on La Soufriere on St. Vincent, um, that's a volcano that hadn't really had an eruption for 100 years, um, was covered in jungle and lakes and waterfalls. So it's something that I really did consider being safe uh, particularly with the local guide that I had. With White Island, though, it hadn't erupted for around 100 years either. So uh, I guess you've got to just take uh, take on board the warnings from, from operators and guides. True. Um, I think that's, uh, that volcano is more in a situation where it really was, even though there hadn't been an eruption, it was very active with, you know, bubbling sulfur pits and gases coming up. So it seemed to the uh, 
untrained eye like mine that it would be a more dangerous situation. But uh, obviously, you have to go with what the experts are saying. And that was really a unfortunate situation where they seem to be wrong. Now, you're not a volcanologist, you're an adventurer. Tell us uh, about your experience with the volcano in the Caribbean. Yeah, it was a, a situation where I wanted to do something to get away from the standard, just sit on the beach type holiday. And I found out about this adventure tour led by a local company that had been doing it for a while, where you hike up to the summit of the uh, 4,000 foot, uh, I guess that's about 1,300 meter elevation volcano of La Soufriere. And uh, it was a pretty fun hike because you go through about three or four different ecosystems coming from the thick jungle of the sea level and going through kind of a cloud rainforest, a lot of misting. And you can see the trees changing as you go up so you get to more of a volcano type summit with hard rocks and uh, ash and uh, some pretty challenging winds at times. But it was a real fun experience and it was a good uh, day, full day of uh, exercise to get up there and back again. Ellen tells us, and you have contributed the article for the Caribbean Guide, but you can chat. Well, she says this, you can wax lyrical about adventure travel in the Caribbean. Is she on the money there? And what else did you experience? Yeah, absolutely. I've had all kinds of wild adventures around the Caribbean by land and by sea. I've gone on some fun sailing trips around the Virgin Islands where you can really uh, explore hidden coves and do some underwater adventures, exploring the reefs and stopping at little deserted beaches and climbing up into the hills and discovering all kinds of uh, cactus that you didn't think would exist on a Caribbean island. So uh, word to the wise there is uh, you're hiking inland, uh, dress for it. Don't uh, go up in a swimsuit and flip-flops because some of these islands have some pretty gnarly, uh, prickly plants up there. What do you enjoy most about that when you get onto one of those places? Um, I think it's the sense of discovery to getting off the beaten track a little bit. I tend to go crazy if I'm just sitting at a beach in a lounge chair for too long. So I think it's the sense, even though that I know that probably people have been to pretty much every spot on these islands, it's to get to a place where most people haven't been before, to have a little bit of a unique experience and to have a story to come back with, to tell people that, you know, hey, did you know the island of St. Martin is riddled with hidden caves that pirates used once. And, you know, I climbed up and saw a couple of them. You know, that's the, a better type of adventure story than coming back from a trip saying, you know, I, I changed from SPF 30 to SPF 50 sunscreen on Wednesday. <laughs> Can I just make it quite clear that you saw a couple of caves up there, not a couple of pirates, right? <laughs> yes, yes. That's my knowledge anyway. The guides seem trustworthy. Without giving away your secret place, have you got a favorite spot? Maybe some of the lesser visited islands, you know, St. Vincent might be one of them. That's really kind of off the standard tourist track. It's a little less developed. Um, seems like more of a local scene versus, you know, going to the, you know, say built up beaches of the Dominican Republic where you're in these, you know, self-contained bubble of a resort. But even there as well, if you get off the beaten track, I think there's plenty to see. 
Well, Bill, we are all about getting off the beaten track, but let's rewind to that disaster that was the eruption of White Island in New Zealand last year and revisit a chat we had with a volcanologist for a World Nomads travel safety article in which he mentions the volcano that Bill climbed. But we asked him why the volcano on White Island exploded not once, but twice. Yes, it's an interesting case, and it's not unique around the world, but uh, this, this particular eruption is one that's hard to predict, and it stems from interaction of magma, liquid rock, at uh, over 1,000 degrees Celsius, with coal-dish groundwater. And the interesting thing about White Island is it's a crater, uh, top of a 1,500-metre uh, mostly submarine volcano, Craters breach to the east, and in that crater accumulates rainfall, and also seawater can get access to the structure. So you've got a magma body sitting in the crust below the crater, and it, the geologists are really interested in that because the magma giving off gases and also interacting with the groundwater produces a series of minerals. I know this is a complicated answer, but a series of minerals that can form something of a seal to the volcano, to the magma chamber. If that seal is broken, uh, groundwater can directly interact with the magma, and that is an explosive combination. The groundwater will flash over to a gas, more than a thousand times increase in volume, and if the seal and the lid on the volcano, on, let's say the crater floor, fails, all that comes out the ground in a rush. So it's an explosion which doesn't have a lot of precursor uh, warning because it's like a structural failure. I mean, it's not unique, but it's a very special type of volcano in, the, in that respect? No, it's not unique at all. Uh, there have been some classic cases of this uh, kind of event. For example, I did my PhD on the volcanoes in the Lesser Antilles and the Eastern Caribbean. And the, one of the volcanoes in that chain was uh, experienced an eruption somewhat like this. It was uh, the Soufriere volcano on Guadeloupe. And there was a division amongst the scientists uh, about what this represented. There was a group who thought it was a so-called phreato-magmatic eruption. Now, phreato-magmatic is a fancy word for magma-water interaction. An explosion of this type that's just occurred at White Island, we think. And another group who thought, no, the eruption that occurred was a precursor to something much more serious, like uh, the initiation of a cycle of eruptive activities such as occurred on Mount Agong in eastern Bali a couple of years ago. In the case of the latter, that's serious news because you've got to get people out of the way of the volcano and it could go on for weeks months or whatever. Uh, but you can predict it. But if it was a one-off kind of a short-lived event like a phreatomagmatic explosion, then okay, that's a real nuisance, but we're not going to get everybody out of the way because maybe nothing else is coming for a while. In the case of Guadeloupe, uh, they did. They decided to uh, caution. They evacuated everybody. Nothing else happened. And gradually people drifted back uh, to where they were living in the main town on the slopes of the volcano. So it's happened in the past. Volcanologists have had difficulty predicting these kind of eruptions, understanding them. And there's ongoing work, intense work, uh, by New Zealand scientists and international colleagues into how this works and how it happens. Well, given that it is difficult to predict then, from a scientist's perspective, do you believe it's wise to hike or travel to an active uh, volcano? Good question. I think there are many ways that human beings uh, can uh, do damage themselves in various kinds of extreme sports. And uh, that question is hard for me to answer because I wouldn't blink I've always relied on the alert levels and the expertise of the tour operators when I've visited White Island. And you accept that they know, in their case, more about the local situation than uh, somebody like me who visits it, visits it sporadically and pays attention to alert warnings only when I'm going there. But for the average member of the public, they probably are not aware of the intrinsic risks 
But, of course, we in the public accept all kinds of things where we rely on experts to say it's safe. It's also accessible. So you can take your yacht, chartered yacht or whatever, and go and moor on the island unless they put some kind of police person uh, stopping you getting on onto the island. It's going to be difficult to control uh, access to it. And if it's not in the hands of expert tour guides, then that's intrinsically riskier people are less likely to pay attention to warnings than they would if they were in the care of a tour guide. One takeaway from this would be don't go volcano hiking on your own. Make sure you, you go on an organised and properly accredited tour. I think that's right. It's a, there's an intrinsic risk to this. Anytime you go to a volcano, an active volcano is an intrinsic risk. Professor Richard Arculus from the Australian National University there. Phil, what is travel news? Yeah, I was talking about disasters. At the time of recording this, um, Australia was in the grip of some pretty major mm. bushfires. Uh, look, they've, they've even caused the US State Department to raise the travel alert for Australia. Um, but... I think it's important that people don't overreact to this at the moment, despite the media reports. Uh, not all of Australia is on fire. It's in a massive 26 million acres of land that has been burned. The affected area is about the size of Southern California. But Australia is a big place. It's almost the same size as the USA. And in area, it's actually 1.9 billion acres. So the fires have affected about mm, just over 1%, 1.3% of the land masses. And that's burned land. Fire has passed through those areas. It's not still on fire everywhere in, in that, you know, 26 million acres. No, and those communities want people to go back and and start spending money. Yeah, I was trying to check on this. I don't think there are any parts where people are not allowed to go still at the moment. Malakuta, there's no way in or out still. But that's, again, at the time of recording. Okay, and don't forget as well, Australia is a big country. Our tropical uh, north uh, is in the middle of the wet season, our summertime there. So from Cairns to Darwin, and including Kakadu and over to the Kimberley and Western Australia. That's their wet season up there, so they're completely unaffected by the fires. And our major cities where, you know, many of our more popular attractions lie, they're large urban conglomerations. So while the air may be thick with smoke from time to time, really thick, uh, they're not under direct threat of it. So don't write Australia off right now. We appreciate all the support and help that's come, come through. And these are, you know, really very devastating fires that have been through. But don't mistake it. The whole place is not on fire. That's no, a huge country. Can I put this on record? Yes. I had drinks with someone from the country on the weekend. Yes. They know a beekeeper. Yes. And the beekeeper said the way the bees are behaving at the moment, that we should see floods in Australia in March. I love a sunburnt country. <laughs> Hey, uh, last bit of travel news. Remember when we did the episode on the Philippines, I mentioned the world's largest island in a lake on an island in a lake on an island? I think it was that great um, quiz question you used to yeah, kick that's off right. with. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's not there anymore. What? Yeah. <laughs> you know the volcano in the Philippines? Yeah. Yeah, it's that. It's oh. blown up. <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the lake in the island is the caldera of uh, the the volcano that's oh. south of Manila that's just gone off and closed Manila Airport. So I don't know if that's there at the moment. Uh, last reading, I think it was 80,000 people evacuated from the nearby region just as a precaution, but Manila Airport was closed because of ash cloud. So I'm not sure when that was going to open. But it is the second most active volcano in the Philippines, so it's gone off like yeah. 36 times in the last oh. decade. So 
But anyway, so... It doesn't exist. That's terrible. That, again, at the time of recording. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Apart from, remember we promised some news on our travel writing scholarship? Well, if you're a keen writer and interested in travelling to the Caribbean, then make sure you're subscribed to the scholarships mailing list to be the first to hear about an upcoming opportunity. A link in our show notes. Go and check it out. Thanks for that, Phil. Now, let's get back to the Caribbean because we're going to talk bomba with Lily. But I thought I would put out the call around our talented staff here in the Sydney office yep. to see if anyone could play bomba music, right. which is specific to Puerto Rico. Okay. Simona said, no, I can't do that, but I can do salsa. I thought, mm, is that drawing a long bow? Because you don't want to no. dis- disrespect the bomba. But I have since read... <laughs> There's a T-shirt. <laughs> Just don't disrespect the bomba. That bomba is both a traditional dance and music style of Puerto Rico, which Lily will explain. But today, bomba can be found anywhere on Puerto Rico and in fusion with styles like jazz or salsa music. Oh, well, there you go. We're good. There's the link. <laughs> Thank you. And you're really nervous, aren't you? Uh, a bit, just because I usually play with music. Well, we could get something up, I suppose. But <laughs> how did you learn to do the... Is, is this a bongo drum? No. Okay. So I play the congas. The congas are a drum which comes predominantly from Cuba. Um, and when I travelled to Cuba back in 2016 to celebrate my graduation from the ANU, I went with a friend and I absolutely fell in love with everything percussion. As a child, I used to play the djembe drums in Senegal. I grew up there. So when I went back to Cuba, I was like, oh, I have to go back into drums. And so I started taking classes with a percussionist in Canberra from Chile. And ever since then, I just play for fun and I've played it some nights. So... We didn't know that. There, yeah. she there was so there. much packed <laughs> Wait a minute, Senegal? Right, okay. This is why we have to ask around the office. It's just some incredible people sitting there, and, you know, with this history. So you you know about bomber music then? Um, I know, yeah, I know I love bomber music. It's very hard to play. It's played with a slightly different drum, but it's, yeah, from Puerto Rico. They sell... They share very similar rhythms. So do you play in a band? No, 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 I don't. I've played at nights before, but not in a band. I haven't. My conga drums are in Canberra. Oh. And I live in an apartment here, so it's a bit hard. Yeah, a little yeah. bit hard. Yeah. So this one is called what again? I think he's most similar to a djembe drum, which is uh, from, I think, Africa. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you said you normally play along to a song, so this yeah. is putting you to the, mm. yeah, to the test because yeah. we just want to get into the chat with Lily with a little, little bit of rhythm happening. Sure, yeah, So we can sure. shake our booty. Yeah. Take it away. Okay. Another rhythm. Can we clap? because you'd have two, but um, you want improvisers. That is very, very cool. Yeah. So do you, at some stage you obviously like travelled. Would yes. you consider going to Puerto Rico? And I would love to. That's the next on my trip. Um, so to go back to Cuba, I'd love to volunteer with some kids there and then go off to Puerto Rico, which is a, the capital of reggaeton music. And, and just really get in amongst it. Yeah. 
Oh, well, thank you Big so much. Thank you. No, thank you. Well, <laughs> let's learn a little bit more about Bomber in the Caribbean with Lily. So Bomba is one of Puerto Rico's original music genres, and um, it's a dance as well. Um, and it was brought by um, enslaved Africans when they came to Puerto Rico. And yeah, so it, it's mostly played in, the, um, in this town called Loisa, an Afro-Puerto Rican uh, you know, municipality just about 10 minutes east of San Juan, really quick cab ride over from, from downtown San Juan. Um, it has the highest concentration of Afro-Puerto Ricans. So bomba is, is amazing. It's, it's basically drum-based music, you know, and you have to learn the steps and it's like so many steps. And um, there's this community center in Loisa that teaches bomba and hosts workshops for you know, tourists or locals or anyone who wants to come and learn about Afro-Puerto Rican culture. Yeah, I'd love to learn about it, but I don't think they could teach me to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you know, they're really good. The instructors is really good. They give you like the outfits, you know, for the, for the women, they give you a skirt, like this big voluminous, colorful skirt, red, yellow, green. And uh, some of the movements, you have to use the skirt, you know. Puerto Rico, one, a question I've got there, I mean, we've got an article in the travel safety section, which has started a lot of discussion amongst the community there about whether it's safe or not. And it seems, you know, it's a bit like the Moscow, St. Petersburg, New York, Los Angeles, Sydney, Melbourne argument there. They talk about, you know, one side of the island being more relaxed than, than the other side. And I think that's where San Juan is, is a little bit more sketchy. No, I, I traveled there. Well, my first time there was actually something like 10 years ago. Um, and then when I went back there this year, I went solo. The first time was with college friends and this time I went solo. And I, I actually felt the complete opposite <laughs> about Puerto Rico. I thought it was super safe. I thought everyone was absolutely helpful. I stayed in San Juan. I did uh, about a few days in old San Juan. But then I also spent time in some of the other neighborhoods, uh, like Ocean Park. Then um, I spent the day in Loisa. I mean, I was basically, I didn't rent a car. I used, um, you know, some of the rideshare services. But um, no, I I didn't feel unsafe at any moment whatsoever, which really surprised me coming back because, uh, yeah. It does have a reputation, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of unclear, really. It's one of those where you're not really sure. I'm not sure why, but I mean, and I would tell you, I remember one time um, I was in a cab and I was going to this, uh, there's a Monday night, uh, actually I recommend that for live bomba. There's a spot in Santurce, Santurce, which is a neighborhood in San San Juan. And uh, there's an outdoor bomba and uh, plena, which is another Afro-Puerto Rican music. Live bomba and plena every Monday night in Santurce at this bar outdoor bar and it really doesn't look like much when you get there it's sort of just a ramshackle kind of place you know they serve fast foods uh you know like puerto rican foods and then they they have a live show drumming and it's literally one big street party every monday night and when i was heading there in the cab i I was kind of feeling a bit weird because it was you know for a while there we were going down really dark roads and (laughs) i was wondering you know whether it was a good idea and i asked the cab driver have you ever been to this place you know and he said, um, no, I, you know, I've never been there, but I've heard, I've heard about these Monday night live bands, but I've never been there, so I can't say. And then he kind of felt that I was sort of unsure. So when we got there, you know, I did see that there were a lot of people there already. But he said to me, if at any point you feel uncomfortable, 
you can call and I will come back and pick you up and take you back to, to your hotel. And I thought, wow, that's super nice. I mean, that is so. super nice. And also, can I just give a golf clap for a party on a Monday night? Well, done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hey, look, so I, I, I actually left thinking, why don't we have this elsewhere in the Caribbean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This hey, listen, but you also, you also, uh, you know, got away from the tourist sites and, Went and joined a rural, a rural community. Tell me about that. I did. I, I, um, I spent a year in the Dominican Republic while I was working on a book. And I made it my mission to sort of dig up the, the lesser known areas. And I ended up in the southwest of the, of the country in a province called Barahona. It's actually the least visited region in the Dominican Republic. But it's very rich in outdoors and it's also the least developed. So basically, you, what you what you see is what you get. You know, these are this is a place where people go just just to hang out, enjoy the rivers, and you know the sea and beaches. The beaches are, are very different. They're sort of pebble stone beaches, and it's just the kind of place where you just get in the car and go on a road trip. I ended up in a uh, community that is run by a group of women, and it's in La Cienaga. This particular uh, town is a very small, sort of kind of a village sized, really. They run their own community tours. To this day, it's still one of the most unique things I've done. I mean, it was really sort of eye opening, very local experience. A good way to disconnect from the world? Not so much disconnect as much as it is really feeling the culture. The first thing I did when I got there was go to a local birthday party. The neighbors across the street, they're very family oriented here. It's, uh, you know, music, merengue, a lot of dancing, a lot of food. It's, it's a very loud culture here. <laughs> very vibrant and very loud. So like, you know, you get a real glimpse of that, I mean, in that area. And then at sunset, you know, everyone goes to the, the boardwalk area and the beach or swimming or playing uh, baseball or whatever it is, you know, interacting. It's a real glimpse into a, a regular everyday neighbourhood. Which, Lily, is the beauty behind travel? Links to Lily in show notes. The World Nomads Footprints recently funded a project in Costa Rica in the Caribbean by the Sea Turtle Conservancy Research Program, an organisation carrying out the world's most successful sea turtle protection and recovery program. David Godfrey is the executive director of the Sea Turtle Conservancy. Hey, David, what's the problem with sea turtles? Why are they in danger? Well, that's uh, not a super easy uh, thing to answer because the the reasons are complex and varied, and they range from uh, really centuries of harvesting turtles by humans for meat and eggs and shell. You know, even back to indigenous times, people were harvesting and eating turtles for meat. And as you know, we have spread our populations around the planet and invented technologies like motorized boats and things like that. We've been able to uh, access turtles, you know, even easier. And, and so we've had a substantial impact on them. In addition to our direct, you know, I say our, of course, um, you know, we as humans, not everybody does this, and hopefully very few people today do it, but uh, we humans have had a substantial impact on them in that way, and, and also from uh, accidentally harming them. Um, and, and this happens in the form of uh, certain types of commercial fishing activities in which we accidentally catch turtles in nets or uh, in the long line fisheries. We, we set 
miles of baited hooks and wait for certain things to come along and and take that bait. And unfortunately, uh, a number of turtle species take that bait as well and and get hung up and, and die before they're ever reeled in by these commercial fishing vessels. So we've got two main problems there, and you tackle them both. Well, I, I, we don't have a long time to talk. I realize I, I only got through two of them, but there are quite a few. <laughs> um, if I can summarize the, the last main issue, I would say it's habitat uh, loss and, and, um, and harming that habitat. Uh, again, unfortunately, mainly through our own actions, development on the beach, the introduction of lighting on beaches where turtles are trying to nest, um, and even you know climate change and, and how that's impacting turtles and their nesting habitat. So yes, all of these things are affecting them. Our organization has been working for 60 years to try to systematically address all of these threats. And in many cases, we're making substantial uh, headway and, and doing good things for turtles, and they're responding. Well, good things have been done for the turtles on the coast of Costa Rica. Is uh, that true? Absolutely. I, I suppose the problem is, just going back to the first of the issues that you mentioned there, where, you know, for hundreds, possibly, you know, thousands of years, they've been part of what has amounted to an economy. So, you know, they're very much at the capturing, yeah, part of food and the shell. and um, So they've become... Yes very much a part of the culture and the economic viability of people living in that area. So the problem is you can't just take that away from people. You need to replace it with something. That is absolutely correct. And and the way you describe that is how I would have described it in the 1950s and 60s. (laughs) You thought you were on a winner uh, then, didn't you, mate? (laughs) What I mean by that is they were a part of the diet. They were a part of the the economy of different coastal regions where they had become dependent on harvesting the turtles for for income and profit and meat. And literally the name Tortuguero in Costa Rica is the place of the turtles. It was given its name by the people who went there to harvest the animals. When our organization started working on that beach in the late 1950s, virtually everyone was making their living by taking the turtles. And we have systematically put in place, uh, of course, laws and regulations to protect them. I say we and that we've worked very closely with the government to convince them that that needed to be done. And the government of Costa Rica has responded and and put laws and protections in place. Uh, They created Tortuguero National Park to protect the nesting beach. And we, of course, knew we needed to work with the local community to replace uh, the, the income that was derived by unsustainably harvesting turtles and replace it with a sustainable uh, source of income, and that is ecotourism. People from all around the world travel to Tortuguero every year to have this amazing opportunity to see turtles and experience them in their natural environment in one of the last places in the world where green turtles nest in really substantial numbers. So how do travelers get involved then? There are a variety of ways. Um, we've we worked with the community to establish a, a tour guide association so that all uh, the people who are permitted 
to take tourists out on the beach are local people. The money goes to them as opposed to outside organizations like ours or even, even you know, for-profit businesses that, that come in there. We, we want the money to go to the people. Um, they, they are permitted and trained how to uh, take tourists out on the beach uh, to observe turtles nesting up close and do that as safely as possible. You know, when, whenever we've noticed over the years that there are uh, any harmful impacts from the tourism that are occurring on the beach, you know, around the turtles, we actually developed uh, a new program that's sort of on top of the tour guide program. It's called the Turtle Spotters Program. And that is a, a way of having a limited number of people on the beach looking for turtles that are at the appropriate phase of nesting during which tourists can go up and safely observe the process. The turtle spotters identify the turtles, radio back to the guides with their group of tourists, and lead them directly to the turtle that's ready to observe, as opposed to having you know, bands of dozens or, you know, 50 tourists traipsing up and down the beach, uh, up and down, you know, all over the place. There are many dozens of tourists and guides on the beach at any time. So rather than having them all searching for turtles at the same time, they're led directly to a turtle that they can safely observe. Uh, in that way, it, it lets the most number of tourists see turtles, observe them without harming them. And on top of that whole program, the turtles are are nesting in increasing numbers, which is very important. No thanks to the micro donations from our travellers through the Footprints Project. 100%. You know, I've been working for this organization for 25 years, and the, uh, the World Nomads Footprints Program has been one of the most amazing things I've seen in terms of, you know, quick response and an infusion of financial support to help specific projects when it's most needed. I mean, it can take sometimes almost a year to develop a relationship with, say, a private foundation or a donor, write a grant proposal and uh, wait for the board to review it and finally reward the money and then get that money to you. And I mean, literally a year long process. The footprints program is very efficient. You know, we, we can describe a project and what urgent need we have um, in a relatively short period of time. We can have a project put up on the website and your, the clients begin to make these micro donations immediately and you can watch the, you know, the, the, the goal be met relatively quickly. And that's important in conservation because you can respond to threats quickly. You can take advantage of opportunities for, um, you know, community support when it's needed. And we just couldn't be more pleased to be associated with the program. There is a film in show notes about the project, which was a finalist in the fourth Shorty Social Good Awards recently, I'm Woo-hoo. pleased to say. It's a great film. Well, that wraps up our episode on the Caribbean. Links to the guide in show notes, which you can download for free. And thanks for listening. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to ours. So don't forget to tell your friends about it. Next week, Phil? Uh, Lungi, who was afraid of the open sea, but is now an accomplished sailor, yet describes herself as a humble Zulu girl. Bye. Bye.